I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to yet another extravaganza of multimedia fun and games. We're on podcast, we're on vlogcast. And welcome everyone to uh, the latest, the 17th in fact. And kicking straight off with a story about aspirin. Good old aspirin. Safe and sound. Been taking it for 100 years for pains, headaches, fevers, you name it. But over the last 10 years or so, it's become the most popular just-in-case preventative medicine in the world. And we pop about 100 billion pills every year. And it's all to do with a story that we can, in fact, prevent heart disease by taking aspirin. And uh, what's interesting about this, that a lot of people are just self-medicating. They're not seeing anyone about this. They're making the decision for themselves. So they've probably read it in the newspaper somewhere that they should take it to prevent heart disease. But about 25% of these are doing it because their doctor have told them to. And what's interesting about all of this is that the doctors are suggesting this and it's going against the basic rules of their professions. The Food and Drug Administration in America, for example, says you should never take aspirin as a just-in-case remedy because the worries about uh, gut bleeding and all the rest far outweigh any potential benefits. And um, there's been a few stories, studies that come out in the last few weeks, which seem to very much back that up. The first one says that people who only have a moderate chance of a heart attack or stroke should just stop taking aspirin because there's a greater risk, again, of gastrointestinal bleeding. And um, in fact, it doesn't even have a protective effect because they discover that people who are taking an aspirin just as likely to suffer a heart attack or stroke as someone who doesn't take the drug at all. So that's one interesting thing. An even more interesting one is that once you reach the age of 70, unless you've already had a heart attack or stroke, you should stop. Because by then, your artery health has deteriorated to such an extent that the risk of stroke and internal bleeding becomes overwhelming. And it becomes quite, quite worrying, in fact. So anyone over the age of 70 who has not suffered any heart problems should stop taking aspirin. And this was a a second study that looked at this. And they found that the rate of life-threatening hemorrhage, which includes bleeding in the stomach and brain, was far greater in people who take aspirin. And of course, bleeding in the brain leads to stroke. And stroke happens to be a very common problem amongst the elderly. And guess what? The elderly are more likely to take aspirin. What do you think of that, Lynn? Well, I mean, the irony of all of this is really clear. Um, First of all, Nobody really knows how aspirin works. But secondly, one of the big indications is to try to prevent stroke. Mm. That's why people take Mm. this too. And Mm. so the idea that it's actually causing stroke is amazing. But what's awful about the whole heart attack, heart disease industry is that this is a real, one of those diseases that is not hard to fix. There are loads of dietary changes. There are loads of supplements you can take that will completely reverse all of this. So the idea that we have to self-medicate with uh, small amounts of aspirin is crazy. Given what we know, hundreds of thousands of people land in hospital every year, land in the hospital every year with gut issues, with gastrointestinal bleeding Mm. from aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs every year. 
So the idea that this is a safe drug because it's been around for a long time is just a nonsense. Mm. And it's quite interesting because um, the American Poisons Center only records 73 deaths from aspirin a year. You think, well, this is, backs up the, the idea. It's a perfectly benign, safe drug. But um, some other researchers went to a, a stomach clinic where there had been you know, bad bleeding. And in almost half of all cases, the patient had even bothered mentioning to the doctor that they were taking aspirin. Because I think it's become such a benign treatment. It's perfectly safe. We all take it every day, almost pop it with our coffee. But no one even thinks for a minute, well, this is still a drug and it could have an effect. And the real problem is that people are not reporting the fact they're taking aspirin for that very reason. And in fact, the number of deaths is, is in fact, so I mean, uh, is, is astronomical. In fact, it's about, uh, they estimated at least 20,000 deaths a year from aspirin in the States alone. So it's a bit up on the 73 that are actually being reported. So if you suddenly see it like that, then you're right to take Lynn's advice and have a look at something else to help prevent heart disease and stroke and the like, because aspirin ain't the way to go. No, and in fact, What Doctors Don't Tell You has done an entire book on alternatives for heart disease. It's just called heart disease, and you can get hold of it on Amazon and many other booksellers in the UK and the US. Um, And there, we outline all of our material, essentially, offering alternatives for all kinds of heart disease. But, you know, the final thing I wanted to raise, Brian, was was something that really alarmed me when you, you first started talking, which was the idea that doctors are suggesting this, despite the fact that a lot of the regulatory agencies are saying mm-hmm. otherwise and mm-hmm. saying, don't prescribe this. And I think that's a, a problem that goes throughout medicine. You know, doctors learn about things at a certain point in their lives when they're in medical school, and they may catch up on some things, but they're usually too busy to keep abreast of everything. And this is one of many examples we've heard of doctors doing something when it's been found to be something that either the authorities, the government, the regulatory agencies decide isn't good for people, but doctors continue to prescribe it. Mm. And I think it's just another case of really having to do your own investigating Mm. when it comes to heart disease to find out what to do instead. Yeah, okay, thanks, Lynn. Childhood obesity, major issue for all the health authorities around the world. It's become an epidemic. And um, the usual suspects have been drawn out, including just sitting around playing on your laptop and your smartphone all the time, not getting enough exercise, fast food. And indeed, I'm sure all those have, a, have some impact on it. But here's an un- unlikely suspect, household cleaning products. They've done a study that found that the standard household cleaning products and disinfectants are uh, disturbing the gut microbiome of children, which is making them put on weight. It's not there, so they're not regulating their weight any longer. And, and that's the reason why they're putting on this weight. Um, so it must be the chemical agents in a lot of these products. So I think this is why eco products are in the clear here. But it's the standard stuff with the, with the agents in, which are disturbing the gut microbiome, which I suppose is not just happening to kids, but I suppose kids are being are especially sensitive to it, which is they reckon is is an unexpected un, uh, cause of uh, of obesity, um, and it's to do with a, there's a, it specifically is a depletion of a bacteria 
which uh, actually helps regulate the weight. And uh, it also increases another type of bacteria, which actually helps put on the weight. And um, so then they found those disinfectants and particularly multi-surface cleaners mm. that were the culprit here. And um, so there you are. It's um, quite an interesting story, I think, and something that no one's really thought about before. Um, but they, they, they did a, a, a check amongst normal weight children and overweight children and found just that, that it was the gut bacteria that had changed in the overweight children. And then they drew from that the reason why, which was led all the way back to the cleaning agents in the home. What do you think? <clears throat> I think it's amazing and it's um, more indication that our health starts and ends with our gut. Mm. I mean, in so many different instances, illnesses that we consider to be mental or and somehow divorced from the rest of the body or um, in, in some other way unrelated to the gut are being found to be related to gut bacteria alterations. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the big ones now is autism and Asperger's. They're finding more and more evidence that things like that, conditions like that, are related to an altered gut microbiome, which of course goes back to what Dr. Andrew Wakefield was saying all those years ago about the MMR vaccine, that it was doing something to the gut and it was causing problems in children and that was causing autism. Mm -hmm. So I think what we have to do is start recognizing that things like powerful disinfectants are going to disinfect us too. And those bacteria we have in our gut are all playing an essential role. You know, to, to wipe the gut clean of certain bacteria can just alter everything. So I'm not surprised about that. And it's high time that we started looking very seriously at the chemicals we're introducing in our lives. You know, there have been cases of devastating illness with the pesticide Roundup. You know, on both sides of the Atlantic, they're finding terrible things, but nobody is doing anything about it. Um, they're just going along with commerce. And the same thing with these cleaning products. So I think what's really important is understanding how toxic your home is. And this is a perfect example of how it could really alter the health of your children. So if you look at the average home, the indoor toxicity is worse than the outdoor toxicity, Brian, because of all of these cleaners, because of, um, of toiletries, you know, uh, of uh, non-eco toiletries and carpets, all of the chemicals we introduce in our lives are having terrible, terrible effects. Mm. So it's really important for people to monitor that and to try to reduce it as much as possible. Yeah. We may not be able to do much about outdoor pollution, but we can sure do a lot about indoor pollution. Yeah. And it, it is quite symbiotic. I mean, you've got the cleaning agents. I think you have the pollutants in the air. And as you say, the roundups we put in on our gardens even. It's on the hedgerows. I know councils use it a lot. And, um, and also organic, organic foods we eat. And there's a study coming out this week about how organic food can reduce your risk of cancer. Well, it's all tied in, isn't it? We do have to clean up our lives because no one else is going to do it for you when they're sort of going after the big buck. Yeah, and luckily, What Doctors Don't Tell You covers this all the time. We've got a section in our magazine called Healthy Shopper. And we source all of the healthy... 
um, safer products, beauty products, household products, um, shampoos, all of those things of every variety. Which ones are the safest and the most natural? These stories started in 2016, and um, there's been a later report in May this year of a number of very mysterious illnesses that diplomats, uh, particularly American diplomats in Cuba and China, have been suffering. And uh, no one could quite work out what was going on, but they were reporting strange uh, problems like headaches, cognitive problems, poor sleep, anxiety and tinnitus. And no one's really understood why has this happened, but it happened, as I say, in, in 2016, again in May this year. And um, a researcher at the uh, University of California has taken a close look at this. And she looked back at previous attacks in the Cold War era and found that actually it's very likely to have been attacks of pulsed radio frequency and microwave electromagnetic radiation. And guess what? The other things that pulse this stuff out all the time are microwave ovens, cell or mobile phones, and, uh, wi and the Wi-Fi networks we have. Now, of course, we're always told that these things are perfectly safe. But uh, when you look at the research, you discover the people who are saying it's perfectly safe have actually been paid by the industry to say that. And it's been very hard to get hold of independent research that has suggested otherwise. So we are surrounded by these um, RFMW radiation waves at all time, and maybe not at the levels that the um, diplomats have been suffering, but nonetheless, we are being exposed to them. And when you consider the, the number of uh, ill effects that these diplomats have suffered, it makes you wonder, well, even at lesser frequencies, what's it doing to us? Well, I think, this is all about us recognizing that we are energy. You know, at our fundamental, we are not just chemistry, we're energy. And that we have, you know, the work of the late Jacques Benbenista, the French biologist, was groundbreaking because he showed that the way cells communicate and create um, chemical reactions is actually through very low level electromagnetic uh, signaling essentially. And that each uh, cell, each molecule has its own uh, signature frequency. So if this means that our bodies are run by um, electromagnetic fields and other kinds of fields and quantum fields, then we have to start looking at where we're getting bombarded with um, with electromagnetic radiation of all varieties. Mm. Now, the other thing that is a big clue to this, Brian, is the fact that people get better um, from all kinds of illnesses with pulsed EM fields and also other kinds of, you know, with laser light. Mm. We're just covering some amazing stories about laser light being um, a real way to cure yourself of of all kinds of illnesses, you know, oftentimes things like arthritis and uh, inflammation of every variety. But we're seeing this with, you know, some of the most exciting treatments have to do with pulsed electromagnetic fields. Mm. So it's not surprising that 
certain frequencies are healing while other ones are damaging. Right. And um, specifically, it causes um, an imbalance in the body. And this imbalance has been um, associated especially with Alzheimer's, uh, autism, depression, and cancer. So, and um, certainly um, these studies that have been funded by the <laughs> industry nonetheless have found that after 10 years' usage, a cell phone, mobile phone can cause a brain glioma anyway. And they sort of accept that. So, you know, I think it's something, again, where uh, governments around the world are busy setting off these G4, G5 licenses, but no one's really looking at the health impact of them. No, this is the problem. <clears throat> it's commerce all the time. Mm. And as you say, fast-growing gliomas were a very rare brain cancer, which is becoming much, much more common with the advent of mobile phones. Mm. So, you know, this is really difficult because there's a number of things here that have become part of our everyday lives. But it just stands to reason that they found with certain studies, um, children had um, greater risk if they had the phone next to their head for long times, whereas that risk was uh, far more negligible when they were just texting. Mm. So some of the you know important ideas about using this stuff with care have to do with mm. don't keep holding a phone near your head. Yeah. Um, limit your use of a mobile phone. Don't use microwave. You know, just it's banned in, in Russia. You know, certain countries ban it because they know it's dangerous. Don't use one. Cook normally. It's nice and relaxing. And uh, with many other things, turn off your Wi-Fi at night. Just those little elements will really help to reduce your risk. Mm. Thanks, Lynn. Now, the eagle-eared amongst you will recall a story we did um, either the last podcast or the one before about a government incentive scheme where doctors were being rewarded for prescribing more drugs. And the idea being that, A, drugs are a great thing, B, they stop people getting ill, C, it reduces the pressure on hospitals. Wonderful premise, unfortunately false, because the researchers discovered earlier this year that in fact, although they've been bunging out all these drugs to people, they were just as likely to end up in hospital and they were just as likely to get the disease. And if they had the disease, it was just as likely to get worse. And um, there's been another follow-up research to this, but this time around, they've looked at, well, you're a doctor and instead of just pushing pills out to people, how about looking at the patient? Because they are missing um, quite a high percentage of cases of heart failure. Completely missing them. And um, instead, around more than half the cases were, were being would be discovered in hospital. People would happen to go to hospital with their symptoms. Doctors said they're perfectly well. And they weren't well. And... Um, it's got worse over the years. Once upon a time, about 16 years back, about 56% of cases of heart failure were being diagnosed immediately by doctors. And now it's dropped to less than 30% or so. And uh, as I say, the reason why, according to the researchers at Oxford University, is because the doctors are so busy getting the prescription pad out, they don't even look up to see the patient who is actually sitting there with heart failure. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that they are failing to miss this most fundamental health problem. 
Yes. I think <clears throat> that's the way medicine has moved anyway, Brian. Mm. You see, in many cases, you know, the doctor does a, a very quick checklist instead mm. of actually examining the patient. Mm. You know, I mean, <clears throat> in the old days, you know, a doctor would not only look at you and take your heart, but also look at the state of your tongue. Mm -hmm. You have you stick your tongue out. Mm -hmm. They would do some checks. So I'm not surprised about this. But the other really important element about heart failure and heart disease is one little amazing factoid, which is, or tiny fact, uh, <clears throat> is that only about half of cases of heart disease have to do with high levels of cholesterol. Mm. In, in all of those other cases, the patients had totally normal cholesterol. Mm. What happened was the patients were simply lonely. Mm. So one of the big factors in heart disease is lack of connection. Mm. You know, people literally die of a broken heart. A lot of women, I mean, and widowers, men, are known to have a, a special kind of heart failure that is caused after bereavement, when the mm. heart literally breaks. Mm. So a real element of staying heart healthy is connection, is having a community, of having a good circle of friends, of mm. joining book clubs, joining bowling clubs. Mm. Anything like that is really going to help you, with, and especially with your heart. Medicine is held in high regard by our society and all societies around the world because it's viewed as a science. We do tests, they do case studies, they do clinical studies, they do research, and that determines whether something works or doesn't, independent of doctors and everybody else. But of course, we know that's not true. Because a while back, um, in the New England Journal of Medicine discovered that something like 70% 70% that is, um, of medical research is fraudulent. That the numbers have been doctored, I use the word advisedly, and, um, you know, they're printing this stuff and doctors are actually looking upon this as gospel truth and acting upon it. But there's another angle to this, which has only just come to light, that the researchers themselves are not revealing their links to the drug company and the drug they're actually testing. And in fact, they found out that fully a third of researchers are not revealing their links to the drug company, even including up to the fact they own shares in the company. So they're shareholders in drug companies whose drug they are testing. And guess what? They like the drug. <laughs> This is a big problem now, mm. Brian. I mm. mean, drug research essentially is in the main fraudulent, mm. in the main not to be trusted. Um, not only do they have people who have shares in the drug, uh, when a drug company does a drug trial, what it does then is it sends its results essentially to a PR company. These are specialized companies who are, re who, uh, are responsible for putting the best face on any kind of drug research. And the way they do it is they kind and this is just this is endemic in the industry. The way they do it is they'll then contact somebody in that field, some doctor in the field they're studying with a big name. 
and ask him or her to put his or her name to this study. So it looks like the study was done by this prestigious person. And then the PR company sets about trying to put the best face on this study. And they will massage data and do this and do that and wiggle it all around until it looks really good. And it's shocking how much of this is done. But as you say, Brian, you might as well throw out three quarters of drug research mm. because it doesn't tell the truth. Mm. And that is, you know, a really scary idea because it demonstrates that so many of the drugs we have on the market really haven't been tested properly to find out whether they are safe and effective. Mm. And in fact, you know, when the British Medical Journal came out with this idea that 70% was fraudulent. They were basically saying in an editorial that we've got to start all over again mm. with drug research. Mm. In this particular study, they were only looking at cancer studies, so so uh, chemotherapy drugs and, and the like, and they found that um, fully a third of researchers were not revealing their links and the fact that over the course of just one year, they had received $216 million in payments from the drug companies who they were researching. And as I say, up to and including being shareholders. You know, I mean, as your president might say, fake science! <laughs> and you know what? On that note, this is why we do what we do. This is our latest issue of What Doctors Don't Tell You, and it's all about reversing tooth decay something that dentists don't want you to know, which is that ozone, simply, simple applications of ozone to decayed teeth remineralizes them and enables you to avoid things like root canals. More and more dentists are quietly getting on with this dental revolution. But here's the thing. This is where you'll read it because most of the other stuff you read about drug research and the latest and greatest inventions and breakthroughs in modern medicine are essentially fake news. They're either phonied up drug studies or they're situations that are overly optimistic by a biased press. And so what we do every month is we tell you the real, we tell you the truth. We tell you the real story about the drugs and treatments you're taking and we provide you with the real story about the better alternatives. Mm. Thanks, Ben. Well, I'm Brian Hubbard, and I bid you adieu and look forward to speaking to you again very soon. Stay well in the meantime. Thank you, and I'm Lynn McTaggart. And if you're interested in what doctors don't tell you, you can get it by subscription. It'll arrive right to your door from anywhere around the world. And the website? Um, and the website is www.wddty.com for what doctors don't tell you. And indeed, it's in America, the UK, and many, many countries around the world, it's in newsstands near you. Thanks Thank, so much. Thanks indeed. Bye.